But as I said, we are in the good news portion of Romans. Spent a lot of time in the bad news portion. That wasn't very much fun, but it was important and it was necessary. And Paul in chapter 4 is defending everything that he has said at the end of chapter 3 from the Bible, specifically from the example of Abraham. Because salvation, as Jesus said in John chapter 4, is of the Jews. It was always to the nation of Israel and their scriptures. And so when Paul comes along saying that anybody can be saved and you don't have to become a Jew, that was a big deal for them. Huge swaths of the New Testament address this issue. Because if salvation is available to everyone equally, then as we learned last time, the Jews have no ethnic advantage through Abraham. Being a child of Abraham does not secure you a spot in heaven. It's not like you have a legacy seat in the kingdom of heaven that other people have to fight for. In fact, as Paul is going to show us today, Abraham demonstrates the opposite. That salvation is by grace through faith. He's continuing that line today. Really, chapter 4 is one big section, and it's hard to break it up, but for time's sake, we did that. He's going to show us that faith was and is and will be the only way to be justified, to be declared righteous by the Lord. And we live in a a time where we have this obsession with, with doubts and it's this, this faux honesty, this like Instagram honesty that we have where like you're going to make a video and you're going to talk about all the things that you're not sure if you believe. And I know I'm not perfect, so you haters need to just back off. And, you know, it's, that's kind of our attitude. And it's, it's crept into the church a little bit where we think it's somehow braver to talk about your doubts than it is to stand strong on your faith. And the opposite of that is true. And the whole point of today is to remind us that as Christians... Faith needs to be at the center of our lives. It is to be the strongest virtue we have. And as he's going to say about Abraham, we need to be growing in our faith. You need to believe God more now than you did 10 years ago and plan to believe him even more 10 years from now than you do today. Because Hebrews 11 verse 6 says, Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Let me say that again. Without faith... It is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, that he is, and that he rewards those who seek him. So people that say things like, I think God is is much more pleased with the person that can be honest about how much they don't believe. Well, don't be a hypocrite, but the Bible says without faith it is impossible to please God. In the final analysis, all you have as a Christian is trust in the testimony of Jesus Christ. That's it. And that can be a frightening thing as you consider your death and as you consider the end coming closer. All I've got is God's promise. Can't I get something else? No, you can't. And that's what we're going to be reminded of today. Verses 13 through 15. Let's start with that. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. And the last thing Paul said, he opens verse 13 with four. So you always need to look back at what he just said to to keep the train of thought going. The last thing he said was that circumcision could not be necessary for salvation 
Because Abraham was saved before he was circumcised. Very simple point, but one that the Jews in Rome, the Jewish Christians, needed to hear. Because they could not conceive of somebody being right before God without being circumcised. And Paul makes the point from Genesis, listen, Abraham was declared righteous and was circumcised years later. So it can't be necessary to be saved. And in the same way, in these verses here, Paul is explaining that the law is not necessary either to be saved. And this is not just some generic set of rules. It can certainly be applied that way. But this is a capital L law, the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments and all that followed. That law. He says you cannot be You cannot need that to be saved because Abraham didn't have that either. The promise came first. And he's referring in this passage to Genesis 17, verse 5, when God changed his name. Remember, his name was Abram or Avram, the exalted father. But he said in Genesis 17, No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Avraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. So he, he intensified the name there. Avram means exalted father. Avraham means father of many or father of a multitude. So you could spiritualize exalted father. Right? You can't spiritualize father of many because that, that's talking about kids there. And that, that was the promise that came before the law, hundreds of years before the law. It would be over 400 years that, from the time of Joseph to the time of Moses. And Abraham was well before that. God's covenant with Abraham was not based on the law. There were no rules that Abraham was called to keep. He wasn't told, put tassels on your robe. Don't eat bats. You have to follow these cleanliness laws. He wasn't told any of that. He just said, I will make you the father of many nations. I'm making a covenant with you today. It was based on God's word Not the written word, the spoken word of God, and faith in that word. Believing God. He says, if it had been by the law, right, if you're going to receive the same kind of promise of Abraham, you're going to be counted righteous, which is what we're talking about. Chapters 1, 2, and 3 are all about you're not righteous, but God will put righteousness in your column, in the ledger, if you will believe. And this is exactly what happened to Abraham, so we should look to his example. That's why we're talking about him here. But he says, if it was by the law, faith is null and the promise is void. Faith is null, meaning it doesn't matter if you have faith. And the promise is void if it's by the law of Moses. If God makes a promise to Abraham and Abraham believes him, and then God comes in and says, and in order to get that promise, here's the long list of rules you've got to keep. Well, it doesn't much matter if he has faith. His faith is null. Because he has to keep the rules to get it. And the promise is void because it turns out it wasn't a promise. It was an obligation. And more than that, it's an obligation nobody could keep. It's as if it was a timeshare program. They've been told, hey, if you come, we'll give you a free lunch if you sit through this this one hour long sales pitch. We'll give you a free ticket to Six Flags if you come and sit. Oh, I'll come and listen. And you find out very quickly that that promise is void. Because there's terms and conditions attached to it. It's like this, yes, you can, yes, you can get a free ticket to Six Flags when this lunch is over. But this lunch is not over until you sign on the dotted line, my friend. 
So it doesn't matter. Well, I believe that promise. You can believe it all you want, but your faith is null. It's not going to happen. And the promise is void. And it's why it gets people very angry sometimes. You lied to me. You told me this was free. It turns out it wasn't free. I got to buy something to get there. Maybe you've been in situations like that before. I certainly have. People say, I'll, I'll give it to you for free. And then you get it, and now they want to start talking about, well, I do think it would be appropriate for a, you know, a certain amount of repayment to, to happen here. And He's saying the God's promise is not that way. There's no terms and conditions applied. How many ads have you clicked online and says, get a free download as long as you give us your email and your credit card information, your social security number, and all the rest of it. The law would have been that for God's promise. Why? Well, verse 15 tells us because the law brings wrath. This is the whole point of chapter 1, 2, and 3. It says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, chapter 1. And in chapter 2, he says, and it applies to you too, Jews who have the law of Moses, because you don't keep the law. And in fact, you can't keep the law. And I'm not going to belabor that point again, because I think we get it. It doesn't matter what standard you want to hold up. You can't keep the standard perfectly. So if it's based on rules... We're sunk. There's no way. But look what he says at the end of verse 15. Where there is no law, there's no transgression. No law, no transgression. Salvation from God is terms and conditions free. He doesn't say, now here's all the things you got to do, and if you don't check all those boxes, you can't be saved. No, there's no law, which means there's no transgression. Do you hear how I can even feel the tension in this room right now? Are you sure you're allowed to say that? It's right there in your Bible. If there's no law, you're saved apart from the list of rules you've got to keep, then the things you do do not constitute transgressions of a law, because there is no law. So you say, well, I did this thing, and I did that, and th that, that's going to blow my salvation. And Paul goes, but there's no standard. There's no law you're being held to. So those things don't constitute a transgression of the law, because you were never saved by the law. You were saved by a promise of God. And yes, I know there's other things to learn about this and faith without works is dead, but let that go for a second. And just take a deep breath and sigh. There's no law, there's no transgression. Later on, Paul's going to say, it's no longer I who sin, but sin who dwells in me. Saying, My sins don't count anymore. You go, Paul, you can't say that. <laughs> that's what crazy people say. <laughs> but that's what your Bible says. It all based on the promise of God. From the very beginning, Genesis 3.15, when God is casting Adam and Eve out of the garden, he promises that someday the seed of woman will come and crush the head of the serpent. Right after they had very much failed to crush the head of the serpent. It's always been God's promise. And he's always been working it out. So to think that somehow we're going to come in and we've got to finish it, you can't finish it. It's not a matter of, of is that what God says? You can't. We're stuck because th this is the hard thing to accept, that you, you are too broken to have a standard to follow. And I know we're obsessed with we've got to love ourselves and all that nonsense, right? You've got to acknowledge your soul is corrupt. That's, that's lesson one of the Christian faith. Your soul is corrupt and cannot save itself. And there is no beauty in your failure and all that kind of weirdness that we say. And you've got to just accept yourself. No, no, no. You've got to be honest with yourself which is, I'm a, I'm a rascal. I look myself in the mirror and I don't like what I see. Good. Because what you see, you know yourself better than anybody else. Which is why we have these campaigns against shame and these campaigns against fear and, and we want to build up pride for ourselves because we know we're messed up. 
Well, that's, you can't dwell on that because it'll just make you crazy. No, you have to dwell on that. That's the whole point the Bible says. You have to dwell on it because that's what's going to send you to hell. But there's good news. We don't stop there. You come to God and say, God, I'm so messed up. Is there anything you can do? And God says, as a matter of fact, there is. He says, I'm going to save you. I promise you that I'll save you. Okay, what do I owe you? And God's like, what did we just say? <laughs> you can't. You're broke. God's given you a check that says salvation on it. You don't go to cash it and say, okay, now how much do I owe to cash this check? It's foolishness. It doesn't even make sense. But we try to treat our salvation with God like that. You've just got to remember, God chose to save you the Abraham way, not the Moses way. God said, I'm going to do this for you. And Abraham said, all right, Lord. And God goes, that's good enough for me. We go, well, it should be stricter than that. If it was stricter than that, you, me, and everybody in here would be on the outside. All you've got to do is say, yes, Lord. Verse 16. That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. The promise, he said, it needed to rest on grace. Why? So that it could be available to everybody. God set the example through Abraham by saving a man who was, for all intents and purposes, a Gentile at this point. And he would become the father of the Jews but he also would become the father of other nations too. Abraham was the perfect representative for what God wanted to do. Paul is trying to remind these Jews that they don't have a cultural advantage here because they can't say, well, we've got the law. That gives us a leg up on everybody else. Paul goes, yeah, you've got the law, but you don't keep the law. So really that's more of a detriment to you because you ought to know better. And you can't have this ethnic pride either. They did this with Jesus over and over again. We're children of Abraham, sir. I don't know who you think you're talking to. Because Paul comes in and says, but if Abraham was justified by faith, you don't have to be descended from Abraham to have that same kind of faith. There's no cultural or ethnic advantage that anybody has. He calls Abraham the father of us all. And we hear that and we nod and we go, yeah, yes, it's very good. Father Abraham had many sons. But do you realize how offensive this would have been to a Roman Jewish Christian at this point? You probably go to Israel today. And say, well, you know, Abraham's my father too. And I, I doubt that's going to go over very well. <laughs> this was the point of pride for them. John the Baptist had to call it out specifically. That God could turn that rock into a child of Abraham. And in a lot of ways, that's exactly what he did. At least he turned a lot of people who were worshiping rocks into children of Abraham. And what's the greater miracle, I might wonder? So it would have been offensive. And, and Paul is, is not afraid to go there. Because Abraham is not just the father of you Jews, he's the father of us all. And later on, we're going to talk about how there was this tension between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians. And the Jews had been exiled for a while, and then they came back, and the Gentiles weren't really backing down, and they didn't like that very much. The father of us all. And he quotes there, the father of many nations, from Genesis 17, verse 5, which we've already read. You'll be the father of many nations. And Paul is making an important uh, note here that the word nations in Hebrew, which is goyim, is very frequently translated as Gentiles. 
It can be translated ethne in Greek. That's where we get the words ethnic from. So by saying a multitude of nations, the Jews refer to the Gentiles literally as the nations. So he says, in a way, it's saying that Abraham is the father of many Gentiles, which would have been super offensive to hear. They had built their whole cultural and ethnic identity around not being like them. But I mean, you got to look at it. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob or Israel. But Jacob had a twin brother named Esau, and that became the, the Edomite nation. He also was the father of Ishmael who had 12 sons, and those became the Arabian nations that Abraham is the father of. Abraham had a second wife named Keturah, and she had six sons, one of whom was named Midian. Genesis 25 tells us about that. And, you know, this is a point of contention to this day. One of the big arguments that the Islamic nations and the Muslim religion will make is that they are the true descendants of Abraham. And that Ishmael should have received the promise, not Isaac. They're still fighting about that. That's why they will claim Jerusalem and they will claim the holy city. There's other reasons too. But they say, we're children of Abraham just the same as you. And you say, well, well how do we respond to that? Well, the Lord made very clear who his, his descendant was. And I'm not going to get into that. The promise went to Isaac and then to Jacob. But what Paul is saying is, Abraham is the father of anyone who is justified by faith. He dives into this a lot more in the book of Galatians. You can go read it. I'll just read one verse, Galatians 3.29. He says, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. If you are in Christ, you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. This, of course, does not eliminate ethnic categories. We're going to get to Romans 9, 10, and 11, and Paul's going to speak that way, that there's still a distinction. There's still a plan for the Jews And he actually tells the Gentiles to calm down and don't get so uppity about yourselves. But he's removing ethnic categories as being relevant for a person to be saved. That it does not matter what nation you come from and who your father was, you can be saved. It was always God's plan to save the whole world. I already read Genesis 3.15, the very beginning, Adam and Eve. I'm going to save those people. But this is why he called Abraham in the first place. We've been going over this in the book of Exodus, that God storms into the land of Egypt and plants his flag and puts his foot down and says, I'm the true and the living God. This is my nation. And I'm declaring war, so to speak, on all these other false gods. God picked Abraham to be his light. Genesis 12, verse 3 says, In you, Abraham, all the nations of the world shall be blessed. Always God's plan. He was never going to stop with Israel. Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6, talking about the capital S, servant of the Lord, which is a messianic figure. So this is talking about Jesus. Look at what the Lord says to Jesus, so to speak, in this verse. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved of Israel. He says, you saving the nation of Israel and and blessing the Jews, that's too light a thing. It's too small. Not thinking big enough, man, right? I will make you as a light for the nations, goyim, ethne, Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Even in the Old Testament, the book of Isaiah, God was saying, I can't just, I'm not some little petty God of this little tribe, 
There's little gods all over the world. And you, you drive through places and you see these fallen over little idols. I'm not that kind of God. I'm the God that made the heavens and the earth. I'm the true and living God. It's too small a thing for my Messiah just to save one nation. I'm going to save all nations. And Israel as a nation, as Old Testament all the way through, missed the point of why God called them. It wasn't just so that he could bless them, although that was part of it. They insulated themselves. They didn't want anything to do with the Gentiles. They wanted to be the special God's people and look down on the rest of y'all. And it led to catastrophe because Jesus shows up and they realized he was not there to establish their political kingdom and drive Rome out. So they nailed him to a cross and they missed it. But Paul who, of course, was a Jew and a Pharisee, writing to a church of Christians that could have been majority Jewish at this point of church history. He reminds them that everyone is loved by God and everyone is able to be saved. Don't you know that? Everyone is loved by God. There's nobody that God looks at and says, I I don't want to save that one. Yeah, but I mean, look at what they've done. God doesn't do that. Regardless of nation or race or language, Acts chapter 2 gives us this beautiful picture of God's church when they all begin to speak in tongues and they're speaking tongues from around the world and all these people that have come from the pilgrimage can all hear them in their own language. That's a picture of what God is doing through the church, uniting all nations and peoples together under the name of Jesus Christ. And let me give a little short point here because this is, one of those trajectories that concerns me in the church at this time. If you're like myself and you're a patriotic American, when you hear people start ranting and railing against your country and tearing apart your history and telling you that there's something wrong with you, it makes you very angry. It's infuriating. We can admit that. And and it it gets your dander up and it makes you want to go to war. Makes you not literal war, although I'm sure some folks are there. But like you're like, no, 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 we're going to have this conversation. We're going to have this fight. I understand that. And I get that. And there are, there are people that are trying to stoke those fires for their own reasons. But let me say this. This is something I've seen. We cannot go along with those who, with that same attitude, are wanting to repurpose the gospel in national terms to save their own culture. And I don't believe there's anybody here that's doing that. But I'm seeing enough of it that I'm just going to warn you now before it becomes a problem. This is a phrase that I've seen, and it just, it sends a chill down my spine when I hear this. People say things like, so Christianity is just supposed to let our culture fall apart all around us? That just means we're supposed to let this happen and let them take over? Didn't the Bible tell us to fight? And now people are not coming to Scripture to interpret it and learn what it says. They've got a plan. And they want to go to the Bible and look through and find the places that will let them do what they want to do. And here's the problem. There are a lot of places in the Bible where Jesus said things like, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who mistreat you. And blessed are you when they revile you. When Jesus said, turn the other cheek when they strike you on the right cheek. And listen, if you're ready and you're spoiling for a fight, the Bible's going to get in the way of that. And here's what will happen if this is not checked. Either the Bible will be, will be weaponized to beat down somebody else 
and say, well, we're, we're the Christian nation, so therefore everything we do is Christian. Or people will realize, you know what? I love this country. And if this Bible is going to tell me that I've got to love people who hate my country, then forget it. Forget it. I'll do something else. I've seen some of that too. Who would have left the church because they say, I cannot serve a God that tells me to love people like that. Again, I'm not calling any of you out. I'm just saying this is out there. And we need to remember that the Lord is really not concerned with that kind of thing as concerns the gospel. He says, we're all children of Abraham if we will have faith. And it doesn't matter where a person comes from or what language they speak or any of that. What matters is have they put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. The world would prefer us to stay in our own lanes when it comes to matters of category, right? You know, if, you're, if this is your race, you stay in your racial lane. This is your language, stay in your language lane. If this is your, your country, you know, stay in that lane. And, you know, even in India, they have things like proselytizing laws. You can be a Christian, you can be Hindu, you can be Buddhist, you can be Muslim, that's fine. You're just not allowed to talk to anybody else about it or try to convert them. And we don't have laws like that, but we've sort of got an attitude that, that is that way, isn't it? Just stay in your lane. Is that's who you're thinking? That's fine. Just don't talk to anybody about it. And perhaps we come to the scriptures and we say, listen, this is just who I am. This is what my culture believes. This is, you know, my, the, the categories I've been placed. This is my sexuality, or this is my race, or this is my background. The Lord comes in and says, I see past all that. And I love you as an individual. And I know that you've got a lot of pain and darkness and sin that fills you with shame and fear. I want to forgive you of all that and remake you in my own image. That's the gospel. The Lord called out the church apart from the law. And now, if Abraham is our father, that makes us all brothers and sisters, doesn't it? So we ought to treat each other like brothers and sisters. Maybe even call each other brother and sister every once in a while. That's an old-fashioned thing, but I kind of like it. Because it reminds us that we're family. You ever have somebody... Maybe I should, I'm going to go ahead and make the joke anyway. You know, you ever have somebody, they only ever call you brother or sister when they're upset with you and they want to make sure the conversation feels very official. <laughs> now, Brother Tyler. It's like, oh no, what did I do? <laughs> Don't do that. We're brothers, we're sisters. Amen. Bible even calls us mothers and fathers of one another in certain cases. That's how we're supposed to be with one another. Amen. And that's a really cool thing. That's the thing the world is, we're all there hollering about diversity and everything. It's like, isn't that our thing? Isn't that the church's thing? That we all come together united by something that is above all that division? And you can go to Uganda and meet somebody that loves Jesus Christ, and in five minutes, you're brothers and sisters. Haven't you experienced that? Have you ever gone overseas? You know what I'm talking about. You go to Russia. I go to Russia, and these people that, you know, my parents, my grandparents, they grew up eyeballing those folks. Watch out for them. You know, they're coming. The commies are coming. And I go over there. I'm like, these people know Jesus Christ. And that unites us more than any of that division that the world ever saw. Verse 18 through 22. In hope, he, that is Abraham, in hope he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, <laughs> since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, 
fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. God is the one we just read in verse 19 who gives life to the dead. Sorry, verse 17. Gives life to the dead and calls as though they were the things that are not. Now, that's beautiful poetry, but it means something here. It's a significant statement. It tells us in these verses what kind of faith Abraham had. We've got to focus on this. Because if Abraham's our example, if he got what we want, which is justification, then we've got to do what he did. I had a college professor that would say that in our church ministries class. We'd talk about this revival or that great move of God. He said, if you want what they got, you got to do what they did. And usually that meant pray with that professor. But if you want what Abraham had, which is justification, you got to do what he did, which was faith. We use that word faith a lot, but it tells us what it means right here. Faith is to have hope when there is no hope. To have hope when there is no hope. And what kind of hope did Abraham have? He was 100 years old, and his wife was 90 years old. And he believed that they were going to have a child together. See, that's, that's a hopeless situation. But he had hope. And they had a son, and his name was Isaac, which means laughter. Because every time God told old man Abraham, you're going to have a child, Abraham would go... <clears throat> And Sarah heard the Lord talking to Abraham, your wife's going to have a son sometime this year. She goes, <laughs> who laughed? Oh, I didn't laugh. It wasn't me. Yeah, you did laugh. And you know what? Name your kid Isaac. It means laughter. Because it's laughable. It's laughable at that. But he believed it. Abraham actually believed at age 99, 100. This is the year God's going to give us our child. And the word tells us Sarah was past the point of having children. And there's, there's a pivot point that we think we come across in the book of Genesis where it seems that she had become postmenopausal. She physically could not have children anymore. But Abraham had hope. That's faith. And some of you are like, that's kind of a ridiculous faith. Oh, but God said. He gives us a, a great definition. You ever want to know what faith means? Look at verse 21. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. What does it mean to have faith? It means that you are fully convinced that God is able to do what he promised you. That's faith. That's belief. Fully convinced despite the things that he saw. Despite the fact that he was 100 years old. Despite the fact that people that were children when he was a young man are now having grandchildren and great-grandchildren of their own. And he still has not had one. He is willing to go to everybody and say, God has changed my name to Abraham, which means father of a multitude. You've got to know some of those servants just went, oh, Abraham... Oh, come on, man. I just, I feel bad for him. You know, the kind of, you can imagine like they're pitching the tents and he's sitting there talking about God's promise and they're like, yeah, I feel bad for the guy because at this point he, he's got to know. He's got to know at this point. It's not going to happen for him. And, but, you know, he can't lose face. And but poor Abraham. And, but he did not waver, it says. He did not waver. As, as the moment got closer, he didn't falter. Now that makes for great TV, like where somebody believes and like it's about to come and they're about to lose hope, but then they don't. Abraham, it says, grew strong. The longer it took for the child to come, the stronger Abraham's faith became. Which means when Abraham was 75 and God told him he was going to have a kid, he had faith. But he had more faith when he was 100 than he did when he was 75. And you watch his story. At the beginning, there's all these moments where he's, God, what am I going to do? Lord, my, my servant is going to inherit everything I have. 
And then they had that, ish, that uh, episode with Hagar where they have a surrogate child. And then as it goes on, Abraham stops doing all that stuff because he settles into faith that God is able to accomplish what he told me. That's how you know if you truly believe, by the way. You want to know if you truly have faith in something? If you get better at believing as time goes on and circumstances don't shake your belief, that's real faith. When you look at things and you go, oh, it just got much, much harder for that to be accomplished. You say, well, listen, I need to have something to hold on to. I need to have something to to know for sure. You know what the Bible says? Your faith is that thing. Hebrews 11 verse 1 says, faith is the substance of things hoped for. It is the evidence of things not seen. Your evidence is that I believe. And the world hears that and goes, ha! That's not evidence. You go, God says, well, that's the only evidence I'm going to give you. Your faith. Abraham had nothing other than a promise and a whole mountain of evidence against the fulfillment of that promise. And he grew strong in his faith. He believed more as time went on. Now we've got to address this because we are sophisticated, scientific people. We prize evidence and we use words like empirical, even if you're not quite sure how it, what that means, you use it anyway. We're factual, we're practical, we're down to earth, we're mathematic, we want to know the math of everything. You know, only Americans would look at something like baseball and come up with sabermetrics. We're going to break down the statistics of baseball and figure out how to make sure we never lose a game ever again. It's like, that is such an American thing to do. Most people just play the game, you know, instead of trying to optimize it down to, that's how we are. And let me tell you, there's nothing wrong with that. But we need to recognize that for people like that, faith is going to be a natural struggle for them. You're going to have a hard time with this because we don't value faith. We value evidence. We value proof. We value scientific papers and formulas. The Bible doesn't give you none of that. The Bible just says believe. And God does not condescend to culture. Now, when we're missionaries, let's be honest, when we're missionaries, we know this. And we study the other culture and we say, these are the things they believe in. This would be a good entry point for the gospel, but this point will probably be difficult for them to accept. And we go over there and we're prepared to work with them and teach them, no, you've got to abandon that cultural idea. But we've got to make sure we're doing that for ourselves, too. Well, no, we're, we're different and we're special because we have cars and medicine and things like that. No, 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 no. We look at our, if if the whole religion is based on faith and we don't value faith, that's going to be a conflict. Well, why doesn't God just give us more evidence? Remember the people that would come to Jesus and demand signs? Jesus had no patience with those people. Now, people that came to Jesus, desperate and really wanting to know, he answered their questions. When the apostles wanted to know the interpretation of a parable, he'd tell them. But when the Pharisees showed up, He says, give us a sign so that we can know you're from God. He goes, I'll give you a sign, the sign of Jonah. They walk away. This guy, what? Nothing he says makes any sense. I'm going to tear down this temple and build it in three days. They go, you're going to what? It took us hundreds of years to build this temple. You're going to build it in three days? And they walk away, no idea what's going on. Because Jesus and the Lord thereby does not condescend. Let me give you an example. People call this church every now and then, and they don't really want to have a discussion, but that's how they'll frame it. Because I have a Bible question for you. 
And usually you can tell these people right away. Someone's got a legit Bible question. It's very easy to tell. But really what they want to do is they're trying to pin you down. And they're trying to make a point usually. And they're trying to make you look foolish. And they're going to say, well, you've got to prove that. And it, it, you know, people say, well, you can't answer that question. You answer the question. They go, ah, that doesn't count. <laughs> and you know, there, there's one guy who calls here every now and then. And he called this last week. And I told him, I said, it doesn't matter what I say to you. You're not going to accept. Oh, so you're scared? You're, you're afraid? You're, you're afraid to give an answer because you don't have an answer. I said, I gave you the answer. Well, that doesn't count. And what I've learned, the best thing to do with people like that is to hang up. Hang up the phone. I told him, I said, I said, you called here before, haven't you? He said, no, I've never called here. I said, yeah, you did. You went all Fox News on me. Remember that? He goes, I don't know what you're talking about. And then he starts yelling. I said, there you go, right there. You're doing it right now. We haven't even started yet. You can ask me about that later. It was not a pleasant conversation. But the, the thing is, the trouble is with, with people like that, you, you can't come at them like you're having a real conversation because you're not. You don't condescend to people like that. And, and, and how much less God himself, where God says, believe in my son, Jesus Christ. Well, I need some proof. He rose from the dead. Well, I didn't see it. So what else you got? The Lord goes, I wrote it down for you. Well, I don't trust the Bible. Well, I can't do much for you then. Well, God's got to give me more evidence or I won't believe. And that was Bertrand Russell and his whole deal. I'm going to ask God why he hid himself so much. I'm sure what God said to him was, I, I had you debate like 10,000 Christians that all told you every answer I could give you. You still didn't believe. Why do I feel like it was enough? Well, I'm the judge and I felt like it was. Now, I don't believe that our Christian faith is blind. I believe in apologetics. I believe in all of that. But we've got to all recognize that the substance of what we believe can't be proven. You can believe that Jesus died on the cross and you can even say, well, maybe he rose from the dead. But you have to believe that that demonstrates that he is the son of God and that he is to be worshipped and obeyed and that he's coming back. It's remarkable how people can just move the goalposts when they don't want to believe something. You give me that and I'll believe you. Can I give you an example of my son here? Micah at his new school this last year, not this year, but the one before, he came in, it was a new school, and there was a bunch of unused classrooms. And he got this idea in his head. He said, I'm going to take this classroom here, which is not being used. And he came home and said, Dad, I want to buy a classroom. I said, you want to buy a classroom? He goes, yeah, I do. I said, what for? I want to turn it into an art room. I said, okay. I said, well, go talk to your teacher. And he goes to his teacher and says, I want to buy the classroom. And she said, okay, well, talk to Dr. Slaughter, the, the principal. No, no, the assistant principal first. Go talk to her and, and see what she says. And he goes, I want to buy a classroom. And she says, all right, well, you bring me $10 and you can have that classroom. She did not know my son very well. Because <laughs> he went home and he saved up $10. I may or may not have been kind of secretly helping that along. I got to see where this is going to go. He showed up with $10. But now, oh, you better talk to Dr. Slaughter then. He talks to her and says, uh, she said if I save $10, I could buy this classroom. She goes, okay, well, let's talk to the superintendent when he comes. Micah found out the superintendent was coming and went to him and talked to him and said, they said if I brought $10, I could buy this classroom. And he said, okay, well, you know what? Here's what you do. You write me a, a letter and you give me a plan of what you want to do with it and you send it to me and we'll, we'll look over your plan. So he came home and said, Dad, we've got to write a letter. And he had me type him out a letter, and he drew a picture of what he wanted to do. He told him how much money he had, which is like $13 at this point. And 
He sent it to the school board. And until I finally get a call from the school board, it said, is this Mr. Warner? Yes, it is. She goes, we just got the nicest letter from your son. And she goes, now you know we can't let him buy a classroom. <laughs> I saved, and they sent him back a formal letter. It was, the, it was the cutest thing. But that's a silly example. But you know what? That's how we are with our faith sometimes. I'll believe if you do this. And then God does. I, I mean if you do this. I mean if you do that. And you just keep moving. You keep kicking it back. Until eventually you have to realize you had no intention of believing ever. And that's really where the point of discussion needs to be had. And that's what the point of apologetics is, by the way. Defending the faith is not so much to prove it to people as much to kind of eliminate some of those obstacles so that you can have a heart-to-heart conversation. Very rarely do people get saved because you demonstrate to them the inerrancy of Scripture. That just allows them to finally break down and talk about their father or talk about their growing up or whatever it was. But you know, the opposite is, in the church, we've made doubts a virtuous thing. Talk about your doubts, man. Don't let anybody give you answers. We don't need to have answers. We just got to have questions. And it's a conversation. And we can never really arrive there. And, you know, you should never have blind faith. I've heard pastors. I would never call anybody to have blind faith. I will. I don't care if you can't see any of it. You must believe. Because it doesn't matter if you have enough evidence. Jesus Christ is still Lord, still risen, and is still coming back to judge the world someday. You must believe. And if you've heard me preach it, according to 2 Corinthians, you have no more excuses before God. How wicked of us to encourage people in their doubts. And then people will stand up and say things like, you know, I've decided that I don't believe this anymore. Everyone goes, this person is so brave. No, they're not. They're cowardly. They're capitulating to their doubts and their fears, and usually to the pressure of other people around them. Instead, we ought to celebrate faith. We ought to celebrate people who believe when they have no evidence. That's what we should be celebrating, especially when things seem to go against us. This is why I, I talking about prophecy a little bit this morning, this is why it frustrates me when somebody's prophetic conclusion about the rapture seems to change based on what election just happened. Either Jesus Christ is about to come and the days of, of glory have arrived, or, well, the Antichrist is on his way. It's like, no, you, you shouldn't let your circumstances shake your faith. You put your faith in Christ and what the Word says. And that's how you're going to be saved anyhow. You're going to be saved by believing even though you have not seen Jesus Christ. That's why Peter tells us there's a special blessing for those who believe and love Christ even though they haven't seen him. Faith. Christian. God is willing to excuse an awful lot for people who have faith. Have you noticed? I don't, I don't much like this. I'll be honest with you. Because God will use people who have mighty faith, even when they have some bad doctrine. The folks that are sometimes out there on the front lines, saving souls, you look at their doctrine, you go, oh, that's so weird. That's not right. That's wrong. And the Lord goes, yeah, but you know what they have? They have faith. Very often, the people that see the most miracles and the most healings are people that I would not recommend going to those churches because there's all sorts of uncontrolled energy that goes on and there, there's often moral failure that gets excused in these places. But you know, these people have faith and God can work with faith. That's why Jesus chose the disciples he did. Consider that. The sons of thunder. They didn't get a hotel room, so they said, God, let's call down fire from heaven and blast them. 
That's the Apostle John. God goes, would you please write five books of the Bible for me, please? Or Peter. They came to arrest Jesus and he drew a sword and hacked a guy's ear off. And then he got scared and ran away. And Jesus goes, would you please be in charge of the church for the first generation? He had a zealot, a guy whose goal was to assassinate any Roman official he could find in order to liberate his people. Peter said that they had two swords on the night of Jesus' betrayal. I'm sure Simon the Zealot had the other one. And then Levi, Matthew, was a tax collector. He was a Nazi collaborator. He was stealing from his own people. And God chose him. Why? Because those guys had faith. These were the kind of people that would say, can I walk on water too? And God's like, I can work with all the rest of that. But it's very difficult to ignite faith in somebody who doesn't have it. It's easier to shape somebody's character if they have faith in Jesus Christ because you demonstrate to them from the word, hey, if you believe Jesus Christ, and I love that you do, this is how he says you ought to be. But if you're convinced that this is just legends from the past or it's just unseemly for Christians to be so actively looking for miracles and things like that, then it's very hard to jumpstart that kind of faith. Maybe that's why Jesus always seems to jumpstart new movements when revivals come. It's very hard to revitalize something that's become dead and rigor mortis in the church, isn't it? This applies to all the areas of your life, not just salvation, the trials you're going through. You believe God's going to bring you out of it and that he's going to use it for his glory and for your good? about obedience? You've got a sin you've been struggling with and fighting with and you never feel like you're going to get over it. Do you believe that God's going to lead you through that and you're going to be able to live a day when you don't have that compulsion? What about provision, financial needs? Sometimes we get really cagey. There are some folks that, you know, they'll they'll ask God for a Lexus and they'll ask God for a mansion and for a diamond-studded hot tub and all the rest of it. Then they've got other folks that are just scared to ask God for anything. They'd be like, well, I'm the one that messed up, so God can't, he can't provide for me. If I hadn't spent that extra money, then we would have enough to make the, the car payment this month. The Lord is saving your soul in spite of all the stuff you've done. You don't think he can fix your car payment? He can't provide you, for you financially? What about healing of your body? Can I tell you what I think is the biggest disappointment that I see? Is when the Lord is... Somebody is, is dealing with sickness in their body and God wants to heal them, but instead they say, you know what, I think God just wants me to be sick. Now, 2 Corinthians tells us that can be true. But there's an awful whole lot more of passages where Jesus said, come and ask and I'll heal you. Amen. Well, I just can't. Really what it boils down to, it's not, a, it's not a biblical conviction. It's an emotional one because you feel like I just can't put myself out there and hope one more time and get my heart broken. But that's what faith is, Christian is exposing yourself to get your heart broken or to see God come through. To evangelism, the person you've been praying to be saved. And you just start to think, this is never going to happen. They're never going to come to Jesus Christ. What's that song we sing? If I'm not dead, then you're not done. You say to that person, if they're not dead, then he's not done. The Lord has never given us permission to give up on people or any other miracle in your life. Your faith is not to be based on what you see around you. Well, the doctor said that it's inoperable. Jesus didn't say that. Well, the bank says if I don't have it by tomorrow, then you know, they're going to kick us out. That must be the will of God. That's not how God sees it. Well, look at everything around. God, it, it, it would be, sometimes we think it would be disrespectful to God to have faith in the middle of a situation that looks hopeless. When that's what faith is. Remember the, the blind man that Jesus healed? 
In John 9, 25, he says, I don't know who Jesus is. All I know is that I was blind, but now I see. He didn't know anything about Jesus. He just knew that he had been saved by Jesus and he was going to believe everything else Jesus told him after that. That's our example of faith. Whereas somebody like Nicodemus, who was so educated and so smart and so knowledgeable about religion, had a really hard time coming to grips with Jesus as Messiah. I want to see this church grow in our faith. Convinced that God is able. That we just believe. That we believe that God is going to do what he said. And that'll make us weird. But you know what? People are ready for weird. People are tired of the old stuffy, stiff way of doing things. They're looking for somebody that actually believes the things that they say. And it's what you need for your life too. Coming to the end here, verses 23 through 25. But the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Counted. It will be counted. That's a commercial term, remember? Logizomai. It's a credit. Put into your account. Paul says that that Genesis story was written so that you might benefit from it. Because we are like Abraham. And that we too are facing a dead situation. For him it was his body which was as good as dead and could not have children anymore. For us it's the body of Jesus Christ which died on the cross and was placed in a tomb. But remember our God gives life to the dead. Do you believe that God can give life to Jesus Christ? That's the same article of faith that hangs over every head. It reminds us of the gospel, that Jesus died and rose. Jesus said in John 6, the work that God is looking for is to believe in the one whom he's sent. Abraham was justified when he believed. And you can be justified the same way. All you have to go on is the testimony of the apostles and the things they wrote down to believe that Jesus is risen from the dead. Does God supplement that? Yeah, he does, because he's gracious and he's awesome, and it's true. So there are, of course, other things to look to. But when it really boils down to it, do you believe that God is able to raise the dead, and more than that, that he did raise the dead? And that he's going to raise the dead when we rise with Christ? It's the linchpin of everything we believe as Christians. 1 Corinthians 15 says, if we only have hope in Christ for this life, we're the most pitiful people in the whole world. Because not only are we being persecuted in most cases, but we're missing out on all the things that we could be indulging in in this life. But Christ has been raised from the dead. If salvation was only for a certain ethnicity, most of us would be out of luck. If salvation was only for the keepers of the law, then all of us would be out of luck. But in fact, salvation is by the grace of God for all who believe in the resurrection of Jesus. So grow strong in your faith, Christian. Commit yourself to the God who keeps his promises. And that might seem so simple, but it needed to be simple because we couldn't do it any other way.